Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 76. And welcome especially to all you losers and suckers. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. President Trump keeps trying to defend himself against reports that first appeared in The Atlantic magazine that he described America's war dead as losers and suckers. Most recently, he suggested his former chief of staff, John Kelly, could be the source for the article and slammed him as being unable to handle the pressure of the White House job. Kelly, we should note, is a retired Marine Corps general who lost his son in Afghanistan in 2010. And on Memorial Day in 2017, he accompanied President Trump to his son's grave at Arlington National Cemetery, just outside of Washington, D.C. And according to the Atlantic article, while at the gravesite, Trump said to Kelly, quote, I don't get it. What was in it for them? What was in it for them? That's what he said. Standing in Arlington Cemetery. Next to a father standing over the grave of that father's dead son. Trump doesn't get it. He never got it. And uh, it's a disgrace. Who would say a thing like that? Only an animal would say a thing like that. Who would say a thing like that? Only an animal would say a thing like that. He's actually right about something for once. Only an animal would say a thing like that. And he's an animal. Donald Trump is a disgusting animal. He has no honor. He has no courage. He has no integrity. And so what was uh, President Xi saying yesterday? Well, we were talking mostly about the uh, the virus. And I think he's going to have it in good shape. But, you know, it's a very tricky situation. It's... uh, Indeed it, goes, it, it goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things, right? But the air, you just breathe the air. and That's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. You know, people don't realize we lose 25,000, 30,000 people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right? I know. It's I mean, much it's pretty forgotten. amazing. And uh, then I say, well, is that the same thing? For, this is uh, more right. deadly. This is five per, you know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%. You know, so this is deadly stuff. He knew. Of course he knew. And he had no integrity. He didn't have the integrity to warn the American people that thousands of them would die. That was recorded on February 7th, 2020. He knew how bad the pandemic could be. He knew how dangerous the virus was. And now we all hear it. And we have an obligation. We must never forget. Never forget. That's what we all said after 9-11 19 years ago. Never forget. Never forget Trump's own words. Because now, finally, Donald Trump has been caught by his own words. In a blockbuster new piece in The Atlantic by Jeffrey Goldberg, now we finally have confirmation of what Donald Trump's words really sound like. And it's compounded by the new book that has 18 hours of interviews with Donald Trump taped. Trump has been caught by his own words. He says, 
My generals are a bunch of pussies. They care more about their alliances than they do about trade deals. Those are Trump's words. And they're, of course, his actions. He canceled a visit to an American cemetery near Paris in 2018 on Memorial Day. And he blamed the rain for the last-minute decision, saying the helicopter couldn't fly and that the Secret Service wouldn't drive him there. Neither claim was true. As Goldberg reported, Trump rejected the visit because he didn't want his hair to get messed up in the rain and because he didn't believe it was important to honor the American war dead. He said, why should I go to that cemetery? It's filled with losers. In a separate conversation on the same trip, Trump called the more than 1,800 Marines who lost their lives at Bella Woods as suckers for getting killed. Never forget his words, losers and suckers. That's what he's called our men and women in uniform and the men and women who've died in uniform. Never forget his words. Demeaning the military, disrespecting our generals, downplaying the virus, and lying to the American people. Never forget. But what happens now? How is the Pentagon reacting? Will this moment be Trump's Waterloo? Can President Mayhem survive the onslaught of bad news, especially when so much of it is focused on his fractured relationship with the military he commands? We're going to break it down. Fresh off one of the wildest weeks in America, I'm going to break it down as only we can. We're going to explore the intersection of our military and our politics. From my perspective as a 9-11 first responder, on the anniversary of 9-11, we're going to put our ear to the ground. And we're going to take you behind the scenes inside the bizarre world of politics, media, and the military to explain whether or not this will fade, how it's impacting our national security, and whether or not it'll actually mean the difference in the most important election of our time. We've got a very special guest who knows these issues better than anyone in America, my friend, Jason Dempsey. Dr. Jason Dempsey, PhD, is a badass warrior scholar, a former army infantryman with a PhD in politics, who also loves beer and bikes. He's a professor, an author, a researcher, a combat vet, and one of the country's foremost experts on civil-military relations. Jason's a West Point grad, and he's an adjunct senior fellow of the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for New American Security, one of the most influential think tanks in America. And he's a powerful voice that must be heard right now. Jason led units on the ground in Afghanistan. He served inside the White House alongside the president and literally wrote the book on the modern United States military. His book, Our Army, Soldiers, Politics, and American Civil-Military Relations, is a must-read right now. We're going to talk about it. He's also a dad, a lover of good beer, and a no-bullshit guy who pulls no punches. I would say where we are here and where what is most annoying and infuriating about this is that we've become a historical to a degree, right? We think we're so goddamn unique uh, and so special that, you know, nobody can teach us anything. Uh, and we don't need to look at history. Uh, we don't need to acknowledge, you know, it's an insult to acknowledge failure or shortcoming. Uh, and that's exceptionally dangerous because it just means you're not going to get any better. He's coming up. And he's also got the single best answer to the peeps question we've ever had. 
You're going to want to stick around for that. I say it in every episode. There are two kinds of leaders in America right now. The first are the kind that are trying to contain and defeat the virus and win the war. And the second that's trying to kill the rest of us. It's simple. And all summer, we've been facing storm after storm after storm. And this summer, the storms got even more intense. And strap in, because fall is about to be even stormier. Hurricane season is here. So strap in, riders. We've got even choppier seas ahead. Riders on the storm. Riders on the storm. And Jason Dempsey knows about storms. He knows how to ride them because he's studied them, he's experienced them, he's led groups of people through them. And he never forgets. Like so many of us, he's angry because he's paying attention. There are issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. And this fall, there are many. So I'm going to change up the format of this show to keep up. I'm going to do more interviews and less produced monologues. And as the fall gets hotter and more intense, we'll continue to improvise, adapt, and overcome. We'll stay focused, we'll stay vigilant, and we'll stay frosty. This month is the 19th anniversary of 9-11. And on the anniversary of 9-11, we're about to lose our 200,000th fellow citizen to the coronavirus. 200,000 Americans have died. That's 67 times the number of people killed on 9-11. Never forget. Never forget the people that died that day. Never forget the spirit of that moment. Never forget all the errors in judgment and policy and war. And never forget that in our darkest times, we can be at our best. But also never forget that leadership and stupidity can fail us. And leadership and stupidity will cost the lives of thousands. And never forget that the only thing that's spreading faster in America than the coronavirus is the stupid. And just like the coronavirus, the stupid never went away. And Trump is the Osama bin Laden of stupid. He's the godfather. He's the perpetuator. He's the spirit animal. And so many folks on this show have been recognized for their uniquely stupid leadership. From Ron DeSantis to Smash Mouth. Speaking of Smash Mouth, 460,000 people ignored public health warnings to attend a 10-day Sturgis motorcycle rally in August, largely without masks or social distancing, and that included a Smash Mouth concert. And we've now learned that the Sturgis motorcycle rally was probably the biggest super spreader event in America so far. A provocative new study came out for the Center for Health and Economic Policy study at San Diego University, which estimated that the Sturgis motorcycle rally may be responsible for more than 260,000 new cases of COVID-19 across the nation and $12.2 billion in costs. And all the while, the stupid was spreading. And all across America, as the Sturgis motorcycle rally was happening, as Fourth of July celebrations were happening, as Memorial Day barbecues were happening, as Labor Day parties were happening, Trump knew how bad the virus was. Never forget that. 
The day after he talked to Bob Woodward, he held rallies and he dismissed calls to wear masks. And of course, he's stupid enough to call our troops and veterans losers and suckers. We've recognized a lot of leaders on this show. And so Trump's going to keep this mantle until further notice. I drive really slow in the ultra-fast lane While people behind me are going insane I'm an asshole, he's an I'm an asshole, he's He's more than an asshole. He's President Mayhem. He's like a political suicide bomber. He blows up not only himself, but everyone and everything around him. He has no respect for anything or anyone. Not our military, not our FBI, not our intelligence community, not our post office. This is who he is. He is a person of no integrity, no honor, no honesty, and no control. That's why he's President Mayhem. And President Mayhem right now is at peak mayhem. But what happens if he loses and won't leave the White House? I asked Jason Dempsey, and it's a part of this conversation that you'll never forget. Unlike Trump, Jason is a man who understands, appreciates, lives, and teaches the four eyes. Integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. We can ensure that when it comes to the lessons of 9-11, we never forget. And after we get through this pandemic, which we will, we must never forget. And as we continue to learn about what Trump has done, we must never forget. Never forget. I was there on 9-11. I remember what it smelled like. I remember what it looked like. I remember what it felt like. And I will never forget. But never forget, it's got to be more than a bumper sticker. It's a key to the future of America. So welcome to another conversation about the past, the present, and that future of America. Welcome to a time we'll all never forget. And welcome to a conversation with a leader that I hope you never forget. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 76. Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the world, welcome to a time of mayhem. Welcome to a time of chaos. Welcome to one of the most precarious times in modern American history. And welcome to a conversation with a guy that I think is one of the smartest people in America, period. A guy I love reading uh, everything he writes, uh, listening to everything he puts out. And a guy that I thought was the perfect person to talk to right now as so many things explode and so much shit hits the fan. Um, so without further ado, I am very grateful and honored to have the great and powerful Jason Dempsey joining us today on Angry Americans. Welcome, my friend. Hey, man, it is really, it's great to be here. And I, I tell you, uh, you kind of caught me out of the blue. I generally don't think I'm, you know, uh, hanging out in the stratosphere. Uh, and I sincerely appreciate the diversity of voices you've been able to bring in to talk about you know, the cluster that's, that's ongoing in America. <laughs> so there's a lot of cluster to talk about. Um, before we get to that, I want to ask you a question I've been asking everybody. Pandemic is still raging. 
Uh, where in America are you? And how are you and the people close to you? Hey, man, it is. Uh, I'm doing very well. You know, I've got a house over my head. I'm in uh, Northern Virginia, just outside of D.C. Uh, I've got a high school and a middle schooler in the house. Uh, we're safe. Uh, we're healthy. I'm not worried about my job. I'm not worried about my health care. Uh, so no matter what else is going on, I know I've got it better than, you know, a good 80% of folks out there. So uh, grateful to be here. I think that's, that's the kind of perspective I expected to hear from you. Uh, we're going to talk about, you know, a lot of, uh, complicated and dynamic stuff, but I also want to talk about some important and maybe equally complicated, but less, uh, less celebrated stuff. Was you, you have a lot of experience as a combat leader at a high, the highest political levels as an academic. Can you talk about, um, being a dad right now? Well, you know, we talked about this as we were warming up, like right over me now, my kids are running around. It sounds like a fucking track meet. Um, I have it for folks that are watching on video. This is my, um, I give no fucks background now because I've stopped trying to play the room Raider game. I'm not going to be room shamed. And I'm, you know, we're, we're all just trying to keep it together. Right. And keep moving yep. and keep doing stuff. But you're a guy who is really good at doing stuff in chaos. And I got to imagine that includes, leading your family too. So what's, what's that like for you and any insights, man? For one, man, I am, uh, exceptionally grateful not to have toddlers. Um, <laughs> you know, like I said, my kids are, you know, 17 and 13. Um, they're both self-sufficient, you know, both of them are studying right here in the house right now. My son just walked by, but he caught himself and was at least semi, you know, not the usual teenager clomping through the room. Um, they're both doing great. And again, it's, I cannot, you know, it's just another thing I'm grateful for because I cannot imagine right, trying to homeschool kids right now. Uh, I'm grateful we live in a great school district. Uh, they're trying their best. You know, hats off to every teacher in America right now. Um, and I am a little bit disappointed. Uh, you know, my son would be starting his or he is starting his senior year. So I'm you know, trying to figure out what that means to be a senior in the middle of a pandemic uh, and how to make it a special year for him versus, you know, a downer as he launches into life. So, uh, again, could be a lot worse, uh, but we're dealing. Excellent. Uh, we are all dealing. Part of how we deal is, uh, you know, exercise, meditation, and occasional adult beverage. So I will ask you, Jason Dempsey, the question I ask of all our guests, what is your drink of choice? Hey, man, well, so for one, you know, we're in a, the golden age of beer right now. Um, at least we were, right? Uh, you know, a lot of small breweries are struggling. Uh, right now, my favorite is right there in Brooklyn, uh, Other Half Brewery, uh, a bunch of New York folks putting out some great stuff. Uh, I know that they're having tough times, you know, without having a tap room open. Uh, I promise, you know, to them and everybody, you know, I'm doing my darndest within the limits of what my health can sustain, you know, to keep them alive through the pandemic. Uh, but that's, that's my go-to beer at the moment. Excellent. Do they have a type? What kind of beer is it? They make a lot of hazy IPAs. So they're, you know, I'm on that, I'm on that boat. Uh, I resisted for a while, but yeah, they make some, they make some great IPAs. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm always happy to give a shout out to anything happening in Brooklyn. Uh, I want to ask you, because some folks are watching this on our YouTube channel or online, and mm -hmm. most folks are listening, but uh, you've got an interesting uh, print behind you. 
that I, I want to just, I want to know what that is because I got to imagine it has some meaning and maybe a story. So what's over your shoulder on the wall? Yeah, so, you know, it was either this one I'm at, on my other wall. I've got a both. It's an original World War One poster. On my other wall, I've got an original Uncle Sam, I Want You. Because um, I've always just been fascinated, right, by the intersection between uh, war, uh, propaganda, you know, and how you mobilize population. I think that this thing right here is great. And, it, you know, as I was sitting down in front of it, I was like, well, it definitely represents a different time. This is a poster for the French liberation loan, uh, where they're raising money for the war. And it shows, you know, the United flags, uh, fighting against the Kaiser, uh, you know, so <laughs> missing a couple of things, you know, uh, we think everything's getting better, but you know, this represents, uh, you know, a bit of unity and some coalition, uh, cooperation in the face of evil that, you know, we're kind of missing right now. And it also is a hell of a reminder that at one point, uh, people and citizens were expected to contribute uh, to war or they're expected to at least pay it, you know, pay something uh, versus putting it on credit card for our kids. So that's this poster. I love any Jason Dempsey story about anything. Uh, so I knew there would be a, a good one behind it. Uh, if you want to see what that looks like, you know, check us out on, on YouTube or, uh, on the angryamericans.us website. Uh, Jason, before we go deeper into the civil military relations, everything going on with, uh, the president and our national security, um, you grew up traveling different places. You know, your dad was in the military. Uh, and, uh, I know you bounced around a bit, but uh, the other question I ask of all of our guests, Jason Dempsey. When you were growing up, Jason Dempsey, what was your first car? Well, yeah, I, I was given a uh, hand-me-down Mazda 626 gray. And we thought, you know, when we bought it, I thought it was the height of luxury because we'd never had a car with, uh, you know, power windows before. So it was, it was pretty spectacular. Um, I guess I've since upgraded. I've got a, uh, a 1968 Cadillac DeVille in my garage that uh, – you know, I got to get running again. And maybe if, if, if my son learns to drive safely, I'll, I'll let him take it out his senior year. We'll see. Wow. I want to go back to the 626. What year was it and what color was it? Oh, Jesus. It was, it was 1980s. We probably bought it in 86, 87. And it was that faded 1980s gray that just kind of gave up. <laughs> wasn't even trying to be a color. <laughs> Excellent. And the, and the Cadillac, I mean, what, what's Cadillac that? Is black you got, maybe you can, the, the white soft top on shiny black. Uh, Ooh. It, uh, it sounds and smells like victory. And if you look at the hood, you can see all of America. <laughs> I, I, I just got a Cadillac and, uh, oh. and I'm excited about it. It's a newer Cadillac, but um, it was always my, my grandfather's dream car. He never yeah. got a Cadillac. You know, he came here with nothing and was a part of the World War II generation. And he used to have an Oldsmobile. And he used to say, proudly, it's as big as a Cadillac. <laughs> Which is hard because Cadillacs are huge. Right, uh, right. Yeah, no, definitely a piece of the dream. So uh, the dream all around us is fragmented. It's uh, disjointed. It's being twisted. There's a lot of this I want to dig into with you. I mentioned as we were warming up, uh, if folks haven't heard the serial podcast about Bo Bergdahl, I thought that you were the best part of it. 
Uh, I think that there were some highlights. I think it wandered at times, but you were this like guy I wanted to hear more of because you were the connective tissue in helping, uh, I think, folks understand what it all meant beyond the politics and the media sensation. Like, what does it mean? You're a great guy to help us understand what it all means, right? Whether it's a Cadillac parenting or that, that print behind you. So I want to start with, with kind of a big question. Uh, you know, you're a strategic thinker. You've worked in the White House. You've been a combat leader. How do you evaluate this moment in history, where we are, uh, and where the, where the country is right now? That's a heck of a question, man. And I think historic analogies are always, are always fraught, right? Because you know, there's, there's a very special kind of social engineering that uh, many on the right like to uh, grab onto. They, they, they avoid the idea of social engineering by saying we just need to return to a simpler time. And of course, that's the idea of that simpler time even exists is a complete is just as much a fantasy as you know some raging progressives idea of a utopia in the future. Mm. Um, so flashes back to the past are always fraught. Um, but what I'd say is the more we look at things like the 18 pandemic, uh, we look at the previous bouts of influenza, uh, we never did that great. You know, we always struggled. There were people, there were anti-maskers. Um, there was uh, employers taking advantage of, uh, you know, sick workers. Um, you know, we've, we've never done that great. Where I would say where we are here uh, and where what is most annoying and infuriating about this is that we we've become a historical to a degree, right? We think we're so goddamn unique uh, and so special that you know nobody can teach us anything, uh, and we don't need to look at history. Uh, we don't need to acknowledge you know it's an insult to acknowledge failure or shortcoming, uh, and that's exceptionally dangerous because it just means you're not going to get any better. Um, so that's a long, meandering way of saying uh, I wouldn't necessarily compare this historically. I'd say we're especially hurting here because we've given up on the lessons of history uh, and we're so fragile in our understanding and in our commitment to what this American experiment means that even acknowledging that we're less than perfect sets a lot of people off and it prevents us from getting better. I want to go deeper on some issues, but um, what's your projection for the future? I mean, you're good at, at kind of seeing the future. You understand the past. Um, I think that, that the, the, some of the folks I've had on this show have been really um, insightful in helping people expect or, or helping them prepare for what the future could look like. This is, this is another big question, but how do you see the election unfolding? Um, potential violence afterward. Mm -hmm. now, what's the next six months look like to you? And it's a mess, man. Uh, and it's only going to get worse. Um, you know, we have a media and a public, right? So for one, uh, you, know, we, you know, there's obviously a bunch of intermediate steps of, you know, how do we get to the election, right? And then what does that election look like? Uh, my immediate concern is we have a public and a media um, industry that is only built 
for one day elections, right? You're going to see all these folks with their maps up and they're going to want to declare a damn winner uh, instead of educating everybody before then to say, hey, we're not going to have a winner on election night. Right? And you know, you and I are old enough to remember the 2000 election uh, and how important right, some of that initial messaging can be about who's the predicted winner, who's not. Uh, my hope, uh, and I know it's probably uh, not going to come true, my hope would that the media would just shut the fuck up uh, <laughs> on election night and you know, report what they can, but caveat and educate and explain that this is going to be a two, three, four, five week ordeal. Uh, and the more uh, we tee up narratives of, um, you know, winners and losers and the horse race aspect of it, uh, the more we're going to see a little bit of, of violence. Uh, there will be violence either way, no matter who is declared the victor. Uh, and the question is, how do we react to that? Uh, how, do, how do local and national leaders uh, respond? Um, you know, and it's going to be a time when people need it off the sidelines, particularly those below the top. But, you know, our senators, our representatives, our state AGs, our governors uh, all get involved and say, hey, we have a system by which we can count votes uh, and we need to keep the peace uh, so that we get that through and that violence isn't going to speed it up. Violence is just going to prolong the whole goddamn thing. Um, so. Yeah. Can, I, can I ask you to go deeper on that? Because you're a guy who understands violence. You're a guy who's, 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 who's experienced it and administered it, right? Like we've been in that and you've been in it much deeper than me. And, and you've also seen the political implications and other pieces. I mean, you know, there were these folks who were predicting what Iraq would look like before and after the invasion. Mm -hmm. I know that's fraught with risk. But when you think about the violence we are likely to see, what do you think that looks like? You know, so we do have, you know, we've got both, um, we have organizations that are building up, are talking, you know, the whole catastrophe of uh, costume role players who all showed up to defend Gettysburg, you know, a month or two ago based on false reports. Um, we have a bunch of people who are at their core are fundamentally insecure. And I don't say that as they are necessarily insecure people. All of us are facing a degree of insecurity with what's going on. Uh, and unfortunately, we've fetishized violence, we've fetishized the military, we've fetishized this idea that you know, a gun somehow solves things. Um, you know, everybody wants to be when people are faced with a system they don't understand, uh, when they're faced with the complexity of the world, uh, you know, the easiest thing to do is say, well, screw it. I can defend my house and I can pretend this is a zombie apocalypse, right? I can control everything within this little realm and it actually makes me feel better. Um, you know, the challenge is getting people, and this goes into the, you know, the larger discussion about where we are as a country is, um, you know, the center has collapsed. Um, People have forgotten how to be citizens. Uh, and so they're looking for the easy button, right? This idea that if I, well, if I just have a gun and I go shoot somebody, I can solve uh, my problems. Uh, and I can make a statement about what I think America should be like that will then result in me getting what I want versus understanding that once you unleash that violence, 
Uh, it's a nasty, nasty cycle, and it never leads up. It only goes down, right? Things only get more chaotic. Uh, things only get more desperate. Uh, countries continue to fragment, uh, and we lose both the rule of law, we lose the ability to compromise, we lose the ability to talk to each other, and we lose the ability to make moral judgments uh, because it's all about who's standing next to me uh, that's going to protect me with their weapon versus, oh, hey, how do we, you know, how do we ensure that, you know, that schools are still open and that we have functioning water systems, right? Everybody wants to turn this into a, an apocalyptic battle and we forgot how to do even the basics. So. Mm. I don't know if that made any sense, but it does. It does. I think, you know, what we're trying you know, what, what, what we try to communicate, I know for our families and the people close to us, a lot of us who've been in the military or been in law enforcement or even been in government are probably having these conversations where, you know, civilian friend or family member X pulls us on the side and says, Hey, you know, you know, this stuff, how bad is it going to get? Right. And, and people are making judgment calls, right? Do I leave yeah. a city? Do I go to a school? Um, do I buy a gun? Right. Like these are decisions that people are making right now. And I don't think it, it's something the media is actually covering. I don't think we're having right. a thoughtful conversation about even the data around what's changing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm watching that closely. Right. And, and some of it has been exaggerated, but there are also signs, you know, of, of what looks sort of like an insurgency. Right. I mean, we've seen this in other places and how we reacted in Iraq determined whether or not the insurgency grew or was eliminated or was incorporated. And now those same types of leadership decisions will likely determine, you know, to what extent the violence continues and, and, and grows. So I, wa- I want to pivot into what's your area of expertise, you know, the civil military divide. There are these conversations now where in some ways the military is kind of fighting back. I've said that you know, mm-hmm. Some of the guardrails are pushing back. I wish they pushed back sooner. I wish they pushed back harder. You are an expert in this area. You know, I, I want to focus specifically on, you know, Madison Kelly, right? Madison Kelly were in uniform. They took off the uniform, took political positions in t- inside the administration. They were next to Trump. Now they're out. And I think everybody who is, many people have been hoping they will spill the beans. Right, that they will be the ones who are in the in, next to him that have more credibility yeah. than anyone else. They're also white men, right? They're also they're the generals, right? Trump mm-hmm. ran on my generals, and then you know the two of them and McMaster's are now out and right. potentially you know in an adversarial position with Trump. So you've written about this. Can you break that down uh, from your standpoint? What and and maybe answer a really a really specific question. What do you think their responsibility is? Yeah. No, that's those. You know, that's kind of the crux of what's going on you now. This, so for one, these guys are in this on the idea because everybody's looking for a hero, right? Uh, everybody's like, ah, oh, the military's going to save us. Um, and I will say that uh, their actions—I uh, think they've justified them to themselves in the short term, uh, but in the process, they've undercut the very institutions that they purported uh, to spend their lives defending. Uh, And to be very specific on that, right? So for one, let's take John Kelly, right? As soon as John Kelly took off the uniform, one of his first interviews that I mentioned, uh, he's like, yeah, domestic politics is just a complete cesspool. You know, stay out of that shit. And think about that, right? This guy just spent 40 years of his life ostensibly defending 
the Constitution of the United States of America and our political system because it's the best thing going. And his attitude was, fuck that cesspool. <laughs> you know, what the fuck, right? It's, uh, it, it won't, but it should be. It absolutely should be a means by which, you know, the professional military educators within the Marine Corps, the people who kind of husband, you know, how the Marine Corps views itself, how Marine leaders, and it's not obviously specific just the Marine Corps, but all the military, should say, what in God's name, right, are we teaching and promoting such that somebody who's ostensibly positioned to defend democracy looks down his nose upon it? So that's kind of the first issue. Then you've got both him and Mattis walking into this administration and the way they came in, right? There's a reason, and there's, you know, this, is, this goes back to your question about history. Um, you know, people with a lot of experience with generals and fighting world wars and trying to figure out, well, what does it mean to stabilize the system post-World War? They knew and had very good reasons to keep generals out of these appointed political positions, right? They knew that there, there were some lines that should not uh, be blurred. We all made an exception in this case. We said, well, man, Mattis is going to save us, right? He's going to step in and be our, our knight in shining armor. Uh, and I think he did the opposite, right? And I think he had a very immature view of his potential role in a democracy, right? General Mattis stepped in and agreed to be Secretary of Defense, not as a secretary, but as a general. And both him and Kelly clinging to this general identity. Again, it, it's an insult, right, to cling to your general identity after you've been a secretary, right? Because in a political system, ostensibly, the secretary is the senior role, right? It's what, uh, you know, it's the pinnacle of democratic or near the pinnacle of democratic leadership. Uh, and to say, nah, yeah, this secretary job, this is bullshit. So anyway, Mattis walks in and says, well, I'm keeping my uniform on, symbolically. Mm -hmm. And he acted like a general who'd just been kind of thrown in at the last minute, which he was. Uh, Mattis played, Mattis brought his general identity into the office of Secretary of Defense when what America needed most was a Secretary of Defense. And so both these guys then, you know, what they want as they've clung to their general identity is they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to be able to say, hey, man, I was just there uh, to keep shit in check. I, I prevented democracy from blowing up, right? Everybody bow down and thank me. It's like, dude, actually, no, right? Trump brought you in and he used you. And you willingly turned over the star, the, the prestige of your rank and of the military writ large to this guy. That was your choice, right? And I think these guys bought time for this administration to continue to consolidate, right? To wear down opposition. Right? Who's going to argue against right, an incoherent foreign policy? Like, well, shit, Mattis is there. So maybe there's some coherence to it, right? Maybe it's not as batshit as it sounds, right? Maybe there's a vision there. Uh, when in a democracy, you need open and sustained debates and dissent. And by inserting themselves in there as officers, they shut a lot of that down. And now, of course, it's the worst for both of them to say, oh, I'm just, a, you know, I'm all oh, shucks. I'm just a general. Who am I to talk about politics? Like, dude, I won't say it. I mean, it's like, man, come on. Understand your role. Don't hide behind your rank. Uh, Jason, Jason I want to I I jump in and ask you, you know, 
you're saying what needs to be said. I've said this, others have said this, but I feel like it's like now is the point where it has to crack through. I mean, nobody will call Mattis an enabler. No one will call Kelly an enabler, right? And they, they, they have hid behind the uniform, hid behind the general title, which, you know, Democrat, you've been in Democrat administrations, you know, General Shinseki was put out at VA because they love generals and it looks good, mm-hmm. the optics, right? We've seen this before time and time again. But, you know, for Mattis and, and Kelly, Kelly specifically to say, you know, it's a cesspool. He was in the cesspool. He jumped yeah. in the cesspool and then he doesn't want to be in the cesspool, right? Yeah. And, and now, you know, I, I think that they, they, I think they have enabled this guy. They've, they've helped him make it worse. They've, put, they've allowed him to politicize a military in a way we've never seen. And then now we wake up every morning hoping that they'll come riding in to save us. And they're, they're, they're compromised, in my opinion. Yeah. But, you know, there is still a hope that we're going to wake up and there'll be a press conference with McMasters and Mattis and Kelly standing side by side saying, we think he needs to go. Uh, do you think, you know, do you think that'll happen? No, no. no. And, and, I, and I, you know, at this point, um, for one, they gave him enough time that you know, even Mattis has spoken out a little bit, but he's no longer in the position, you know, so folks aren't necessarily going to pay much, you know, attention to him. Uh, he had the chance, you know, he wrote a book, you know, walked around uh, bashing every Democrat he ever worked for. And then it's like, ah, you know, I can't criticize presidents. I can't do this. It's like, dude, no, just admit you're a partisan. Admit that you agree with, you clearly agree with most of Trump's agenda. Uh, and you see that just kind of, you agree with the general direction. You're just trying to, you know, affect it on the margins versus saying, hey, no, I disagree with where this guy is going fundamentally, and I'm here to work directly against him uh, in a political manner, right? That's cool. Go ahead and do that, man. Be, be a politician, right? That's actually your responsibility as a citizen at this point. Right. Uh, not to wait. And I think what's dangerous is everybody saying, man, I wish these guys would come out as military leaders and condemn him. That's the last thing, right? We don't want military leaders to come out uh, and condemn anybody, Democrat or Republican. Uh, The military, for the most part, needs to stay the hell out of it. But again, uh, these guys try to have their cake and eat it too. Uh, You know, and so now whenever there's criticism or whether they're being taken to the mat on something, uh, they want to put the uniform back on and say, oh, I shouldn't get involved in politics. Like, no, man, own it. That ship sailed. Go for it. Um, you know, relatedly, just so there's no confusion. If we play this out forward, right? Now there are these controversial pieces being written by Noggle and others, right? About what happens if Trump won't leave office. So I'm not going to ask you about, um, you know, what may or may not happen. But let's play this out. You worked mm-hmm. in the White House for the president. You know, you stood up joining forces. You know, I think that's, that might have been how we first met. You were still in uniform at the time, mm-hmm. uh, at a time when we had a group of people in the White House that were focused on a lot of this civil military relations stuff, right? Yeah. And how to get the White House involved. But you've been there. If Trump does not leave office and he has lost the election, in your view, as an expert on America, mm-hmm. how, how should he be removed and yeah. who should remove him? In the most mundane way possible, you know, it's like Secret Service can turn off all the blue badges. (laughs) 
You know, just like, okay, hey, you want to hang on the house? All right. None of your staff can come in or out anymore because they're no longer legally allowed to be here. Um, you know, we've revoked all the passes. We revoked all the parking. No, you can't bring your car in. Um, you know, and then, you know, I mean, there's no need to, storm, you know, he wants nothing more or would want nothing more than, you know, this idea of people storming the gates and him being forcibly removed. Let him go out and, you know, the humiliation of just bureaucratic processes wherein, hey, dude, no, you can't send it into Congress because you're not legally authorized to do so. And you can sit there and pout for as long as you want, um, but the government's going to keep moving on. Right. Let all the Democrats move in, you know, assuming there's a, you know, it goes that way. Let them all move in and start running agencies. Um, I just, I, I, I think this, this sense, uh, you know, <sighs> the military shouldn't be solving any problems. It sure, certainly shouldn't be involved in this one. Right. And there's, there's, it's the same thing as like, Hey, uh, you know, we need to arrest a drug dealer. Do we run into his house with guns blazing? Or do we just have a plain clothes dude who waits for him to go shopping for bread and picks him up, you know, outside the grocery store? Um, you know, there are ways to do it without making it a spectacle. That's powerful. I mean, I, I don't I think people are, are imagining this image of, you know, Bob Mueller delivering a search warrant, <laughs> pulling him out in handcuffs. Right. But there, there is, a, you know, a, a powerful simplicity and probably the practicality of what you're describing. At some point, he and his people have to leave. And the idea of him trying to scan a badge that doesn't work to get back in the White House, it would be powerful and effective, right? And, and may actually be what, what has to happen. But let me ask you to drill down on something because this time I think is different. You know, at least we'll see where this goes. But it, this could be the biggest veterans military story of yeah. our time, because in my view, it may cost him the election. It may or may not. But mm -hmm. he, this, this, this reporting from the Atlantic by Goldberg that he has called um, troops losers uh, and suckers. There are multiple quotes now along those lines where he's disrespected service without the specifics yeah. of what he said, what he didn't say. We know who he is. Mm -hmm. I've said this is who he is. So whether or not we have an anonymous source or not, all the attacks on McCain and Khan and everyone else are out there and well-established. Can you talk about what you think is happening right now in America around this, if it's landing and, and what it means, not just for now, but for the future of the country? It's for one, I think, um, one, again, it ties into the symbolism, right? Um, the military is the last institution standing. Uh, nobody has confidence in nearly any other organization. And again, we can talk a lot about that, right? Most of, we're probably at peak military for one. Uh, and I would submit that most of public confidence in the military uh, is a facade. Um, you know, so it's, it's something to, for people to, to easily get angry about, uh, but it's fairly shallow, um, in terms necessarily in terms of how it's going to change people, you know, who most of us have already made up our minds about, you know, what this election is going to look like. Um, you know, again, had some of this uh, come out earlier, had people directly push back or refused to serve because he had those attitudes, then I think that would have kept him in check better. Uh, whereas now, right, it's like it's why Congress is not going to do anything right now. 
right? There is no incentive for Lindsey Graham or anyone else to do anything this close to the election. No incentive whatsoever. So there's really nothing short of, you know, I can't even imagine the circumstances, right? There's clearly no criteria by which a lot of these political leaders that have tied their, tied their fates to him, uh, you know, they're not going to suddenly come to their senses. Um, with this, with what's going on, I think there will be some softening again, just because again, I've said, I've said most of confidence in the military is a, a bit of a facade. Um, but there will be a softening of folks in the middle. Um, you know, the question, the unknown question is, is this really an election about the middle or is it about activating the base? Uh, and I think it's probably mostly the latter. Um, so I, I, that's a really long way of saying, I'm not sure how much this is going to affect everything. Um, but it does just highlight the really dysfunctional role that the military plays uh, in American public opinion. Is, is there precedent, Jason, for the politicization of the military that he has capitalized on? You know, I said he ran on the flag, <laughs> shit on the flag, and now the flag, to some extent, is fighting back. Yeah. Um, and, and to us, it feels new. Um, but you are an expert in history and, and we, you know, Jay, JFK well, ran is, as a PT boat commander. George right. Washington was a general, right? We've, we've been here before, but the, the damage that may be inflicted right now on our national security, that's what I point to, right? I say our enemies are celebrating for him to be attacking his own generals yeah. out in the open in this media environment to be threatening to remove a, a, a defense secretary that he installed, you know, the, 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 uh, the refusal to confront our adversaries like Russia and others as they, you know, I don't say meddle with our elections, mm -hmm. they're attacking our elections and, and mm -hmm. all these other yeah. things are happening. Number one, um, how much more vulnerable are we, right? Beyond the politics and whether or not this has landed, the overall disruption yeah. that, that, that the military apparatus is experiencing. And, and is there precedent for this as a student of history? Well, so one of the, you know, there's two real separate questions on, uh, you know, one is just the role of the military and politics uh, over time. Uh, we're certainly in a unique time because, you know, the military has this outsized reputation. Uh, the military is put on a pedestal and seen as, you know, everything that's good about America. And again, even if people don't understand what the hell is going on with the military, right? And, and if I could, you know, sideline a little rant here, right? The, when people say they love the military, Right? Let me be very clear. You can't say you love the military without knowing enough about the military to be critical of it, right? Because if you're not, if you don't know enough about it to be critical of it, uh, then your love of the military is no deeper than, you know, a teenage boy's relationship with porn, right? It's this projecting a fantasy onto some glossy images of what you think love and intimacy is like that uh, has nothing to do with reality. And a lot of Americans project onto the military what they think the military should be um, or what they want it to be, right? They want to see it as, you know, the patriots who agree with them. And so what's interesting here is by the military being brought front and center into these debates, uh, you're going to see just how strong some of these attitudes and respect for the military is. Um, because as soon as, you know, one thing we found, um, there's a lot of great civil mill scholars right now doing a lot of great research, uh, Jim Golby, Heidi Urban, and others who, you know, if, if, if the military, everybody's going to say, I love the military, but then if somebody in the military says, well, I want to vote for Biden and or Trump, then the public's very easy to say, oh, well, the military's fucked up. 
you know, they switch on the dime. Right. Uh, and so by bringing the military into these debates, uh, I don't think, you know, I think everybody's going to soften overall. They're going to be like, huh, maybe the military is not what I thought it was. Not good for a whole host of reasons. And what I just described there, you know, has several competing threads of things we can talk about. But, um, you know, we're in a weird spot to go back to your original question historically, because again, last institution standing, but not a lot of interaction with the military. Um, so again, it's this kind of fantasy idea of the savior that's going to solve all of our problems, right? Not just foreign policy, but we want to bring it in and have it adjudicate domestic political disputes to your more, to your more straightforward question. Of course, this is hurting us, right? Could anybody explain right now what our serious strategy is? What's our Iraq strategy? What's our Afghanistan strategy? The president is simply not talking about these things. And if Esper and Milley are being jerked back and forth trying to figure out, you know, A, do I have a job today? Uh, B, am I being used, you know, for a publicity stunt? And how do I avoid that? That's time they're not spent thinking about working on, right, how are we executing and engaging with all these conflicts abroad? So it's certainly, I mean, our, our, our eye is off the ball. We're isolated in the world. And everybody, for once, one of the saddest things I've seen uh, is, you know, people have regularly hated America, um, you know, off and on. People dislike us. Uh, but this is probably one of the first times, at least in our lifetime, uh, where foreigners look at America and have pity. Hmm. Hmm. That that's powerful. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I I don't think there's a historical parallel that really fits because we've never had so few serving right. so many for so yeah. long, right? So like all the other, all the other pre- we had a draft or a threat of a draft or a conscription or yeah. something else that wove it in. So the the, the ability to politicize it is is uh, the opportunity to politicize it is, is greater than ever before because right. they're so foreign, they're, they're so disconnected. Let me ask you, Jason, you're an expert on the data, the demographics. What do you think people need to know about the military that they don't know? You've done extensive research on this. Yeah. You're one of the foremost scholars in the country on it. What do you think they need to know? The military is from America. <laughs> it's a bunch of Americans. Um, you know, we should always celebrate the idea that there are Americans who step forward to serve. Um, but that doesn't mean that they left everything else at the door, right? Members of the military do great things, but uh, they also abuse drugs and abuse their spouses. Uh, members of the military are willing to serve uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, but that doesn't mean right, they have expertise on foreign affairs. Um, we absolutely should celebrate this desire to serve and, but also recognize one, uh, you know, when a veteran or a military officer starts expounding on things that aren't directly veteran or military related, uh, you know, my advice to everybody is always, you know, if you, if you ever catch yourself starting a phrase with, as a veteran, my polite request is please just shut the fuck up, right? Don't want to hear it, man. Uh, speak for yourself. Bring your veteran experience into conversations. Educate your fellow Americans about what it means to be a veteran, what you did. But don't pretend to speak for all veterans. And don't believe for a minute that your veteran status gives you a unique perspective. Um, because at some point, 
right? That subverts the very idea of service, right? To say, because I'm a veteran, you need to listen to me. It's like, actually, no, you are serving, um, you know, the democratic system. So, um, again, it's a long way of saying that what people need to know about the military is it's, it's your next door neighbor, uh, with all the, with all the strengths and flaws. Um, and they're trying to do good work. Um, you know, we don't always get there, but they're trying, uh, you know, so don't turn them into, <laughs> you know, recognize them for what they are, but don't turn them into superheroes, uh, or villains. Yeah. You, you, you and I have watched this closely and I try to describe this to folks, especially in this environment where, where veterans are thrown up because they're veterans. I've had people, when I ran IVA, I can't tell you how many times someone would call up and say, I need 20 veterans for X. Like I had a vending machine, right? Yeah. It's okay. You need five women with no right leg in Florida. Got it. Do, 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 right. Yeah. But there's also now a sense of entitlement that we talk about, write about mm-hmm. where, you know, every veteran being elevated on national security um, and, and feeling that they should be elevated on national security and veterans policy is like every black person, uh, you know, acting like they were a freedom rider. Right? right. I mean, like, you know, every, every black person is not John Lewis and, and every veteran is not, you know, Max Cleland, you know, they don't have the perspective and the depth of knowledge and even the credibility, right. right. That's necessary for some of these discussions but it continues to be thrust forward. But let me ask you a pointed question that you've studied. What do you think the the political makeup is of the military and the veterans community, which are different, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of talk now about how they're going to vote, how they're going to vote in this choice between Trump and and Biden. Yeah. So there's a couple different dynamics, right? So uh, for one, right, it's always an easy headline to say, you know, one of the classic headlines that's annoyed me year after year after year is when somebody say, hey, veterans are voting this way. It's like, all right, stop. Um, because when you talk about the veteran population, as you noted, um, you know, it used to be predominantly a World War II generation. Right now, the modal veteran, right, one third of all veterans is a Vietnam vet. So, we, and oh, by the way, guess what? Yeah, a lot of dudes and predominantly white. So when somebody says, well, veterans are voting this way in this election, just say, hey, just, you know, be upfront about it. You're talking about 60 to 70 year old white men. Right. And, you know, it doesn't make for a sexy headline. Um, But, hey, if you're going to, you know, so when people hear veterans are voting this way, right, they need to keep that in mind. Um, When it comes to the active force and, you know, if you want to parse out the younger generation, um, veteran status or military status does not shape opinions as much as people think, right? People walk in inclined to be a Republican or inclined to be a Democrat, uh, and that's kind of how their worldview forms. Um, The active force in all my studies in terms of liberal and conservative self-identification looks almost exactly like America, right? Just as many liberals, just as many conservatives, uh, you know, a lot of people who are just kind of in between, like, man, I don't know, Uh, particularly with a young population, but it largely looks like uh, America. Where this has gotten interesting with this election is, uh, you know, academic geeks like myself will break stuff down, you know, traditionally on the models of liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat. Uh, But right now, neither of those two framings really mean anything. uh, Because populism is kind of, populism and reactionary politics have kind of driven right through the middle. 
uh, we're watching a fracturing of the Republican Party. Um, you are seeing a lot of historically identified uh, veterans who would historically identify as Republicans saying, okay, well, maybe not this particular version of the Republican Party, and it's going to be a few years before all this shakes out. And, you know, what will the Republican Party be in four to eight years? I don't know. I just know it's not going to be the Republican Party we grew up with. It's either all Trump uh, and reactionary populism or, you know, could potentially be, you know, some of what you're seeing out of the, out of the Lincoln project. Um, so anyway, yeah, so that's a, that's a long way of saying my models and what I've looked at in terms of how veterans and how young folks approach politics is, you know, it used to be the younger, you'd naturally be kind of more liberal to a degree. Uh, I think what some, some of what we're seeing is some older active officers are saying, you know what, this isn't good for national security. I believe in the systems and institutions I've been trained in, and that's where I think you see the military times break a little bit, right? Very senior careers folks, but then also they're on top of uh, a group of younger soldiers who are just as prone to uh, kind of this wave of populism as anybody else. Got it. Got it. So Jason, let's do maybe kind of a rapid fire on a couple of things, um, because I think you're, you're an expert that I'm lucky to have here. Uh, Trump has announced, the Defense Department has announced a drawdown in Iraq. One third of our troops coming down. They're making a big deal out of it. I don't think it's a big deal. Uh, you know, dropping down 2,200, leaving behind 3,200. You worked in the White House probably around the time that Obama had a celebratory uh, ceremony in 2011, I think it was, announcing the end of the Iraq war. This feels very political to me, right? Yeah. At a time when Trump needs a win and he wants to deflect and I don't think the Pentagon makes any announcements without him knowing about it. But, yep. you know, this week, the week of 9-11, they say, hey, by the way, we're bringing troops home from Iraq, which we're doing all the time. But that's right. my view. I think it's bullshit. I don't think the Iraqis think this is a drawdown. I don't think the American public even knows we have 5,000 troops there. Yeah. But what's your quick breakdown of, of that? Yeah. And potentially by the time this airs, there may be a similar announcement about Afghanistan. Uh, before yeah. I mean, there's just there's simply no coherence. Right. There's no coherence in terms of, you know, one of the things that, that's been interesting about uh, the last four years is just a lot of this stuff's been on cruise control. Um, and it's just kind of the day to day in and out of military planners kind of driving the train. Uh, yeah, this announcement. It is worth anything else that's been stated about, you know, our direction in Syria or Afghanistan over the last three and a half years which means it's meaningless, right? There is no there, there. Uh, you know, this guy's shown that, you know, more than willing to just make an off the cuff statement, you know, and then it's up to Esper and everybody else to try to figure out how do they, how do they backwards engineer? Oh, today we're, you know, today we're taking the gloves off and we're fully in the fight. Oh, nope. Wrong memo. Right. We're actually, you know, this is the this is the president who's getting us out of wars now today. So everybody act like that's the case. Uh, you know, he's just throwing spaghetti on the wall. And unfortunately, uh, not only does it lead people to doubt, uh, you know, any statement out of DOD, uh, but it also pre it prevents public engagement. Right? I think one of the things that annoys both me and you is, you know, a public that doesn't realize that we are still have ongoing operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but you can't blame the public for like, well, wait, 
I thought this guy got us out of all wars or wait, I thought this guy took the gloves off three years ago. And when he dropped, you know, a really loud, obnoxious bomb that did jack all, uh, I thought that was, you know, when we declared victory, uh, you know, so you know, you gotta, I think for the most part, you can just ignore it as noise. Let me, let me ask you the question I do ask of all my guests, Jason Dempsey, what makes you angry? <laughs> all of this. Um, and it ties into, you know, I know we, we, we talked a lot today about a lot of different topics. Uh, the thing that makes me most angry is the general abdication of citizenship. Um, you know, everybody wants to be angry. Uh, everybody wants an instant solution, uh, but nobody's willing to do the work. And I, I would say that particularly with the boomer generation, America has turned into that uh, you know, the 16 year old, you know, who's been getting everything in life, but for their birthday, they're given, you know, they're given a brand new blue Porsche. You know, they throw an absolute fucking tantrum because by God, I wanted a yellow Ferrari, right? I'm going to run away from home. Screw it. Right. <laughs> this isn't everything I ever wanted. Therefore to hell with it all, burn it down. Uh, and that's kind of where we are in America right now. It's like, I mean, this has never been easy, man. It's always required all hands on deck. It's required people to be engaged, right, in your local politics, in your unions, in your schools, uh, on your school boards, on your local boards. Uh, you know, get off your ass and quit praying for Trump to come in and solve all your problems. Uh, or quit blaming Trump for all your problems, right? Um, be a goddamn citizen, right? That has a, an amazing amount of power and agency. That's American exceptionalism, is this idea that any of us uh, have a right to a voice and the ability to use it and to get involved, whether that's you know, the newest immigrant with no money uh, or a billionaire, right? We, you know, we've, we've seeded a little bit too much um, you know, to other people wanting to solve our problems. So, uh, yeah. And all that ties into why we're so angry about the, you know, how the military is using this because everybody wants the military to be their savior. It's like, guys, let the military fight people overseas. Uh, but, you know, they're doing that so that we can fix our own domestic problems. Um, so, yeah, be a citizen. I love that. I love that. That's going to get replayed and passed around, I hope, because that's what I think many people need to hear right now, and especially right now. Jason, you've been inside the White House. You've worked, you know, alongside President Obama and the First Lady. Um, you, you know, you've been a part of encouraging people to be citizens. You've been around, I know, Vice President Biden. I don't know if you've been around Trump personally or not, but I, I want to take people a little bit behind the curtain. What do you know about Biden that you can share? And what do you think other people should think about, and especially with regard to national security defense issues? Um, yeah, two things. One, you know, what you see is what you get, which is kind of refreshing, right? You know, everybody talks about Biden's age. Uh, you know, he is long-winded. He loves to tell stories, but it's because he cares, right? He has a narrative and a view of the world. Uh, not a narrative he's trying to impose on people. He's just trying to connect uh, and trying to, you know, share his stories bring other people into the story. Um, you know, I haven't interacted with him a whole hell of a lot, you know, only on a couple of occasions and he seems, you know, exceptionally genuine. And, you know, what I always tell people is, you know, when you're at that level, uh, it's really hard to, to fake it or you get caught as per, you know, what we see now with a lot of these folks. It's like, 
you're going to get caught uh, if you're being fake, right? If you're saying one thing about the pandemic, uh, but you really believe another thing, it's coming out sooner or later, right? So uh, one, I think Biden's very authentic. And two, and this was even true in the Obama White House, uh, his kind of understated power was his institutional longevity. And a lot of people are like, oh, he's an insider. He's just like, well, you know what? He knows how the system works and how it's supposed to work. And oh, by the way, uh, you know, this isn't about burn it all down or instantly, you know, transform it into the Taj Mahal. It's about, hey, let's keep the goddamn lights running. You want people in government who know how to fulfill budgets, who understand the implications of, you know, taking money out of this pot. Well, you know. It's going to have repercussions over here. And so I think one, you know, and as he's selling himself as a very steady hand. The other thing I would say is he was right about Afghanistan. Or he was more right than anyone else. He was more right than George Bush. He was more right than Condi Rice. And, you know, sadly, he was more right than where uh, Obama ended up. You know, this idea that, hey, we're not going to remake this thing now. You can argue or whether his particular version of CT light was going to work. Uh, but I think he nailed it more than anyone else in terms of we don't need to be <laughs> look back at the last 10 years, right? Every prediction that the military made every goal that Obama and his predecessors set, uh, we've failed miserably. Mm. Um, so, you know, a lot of people ding him on foreign policy, but at least in that respect, um, you know, hell I'm willing to listen to him. Mm. CT light counterterrorism light, right? Yeah, that was you know that was kind of the option he's throwing out. Like, let's not try to remake Afghanistan. He said, you know, I don't think we can do that. I don't think it's something we should try to do. Uh, but you know, we had a whole coterie of you know saviors at that point. It was in the form of uh, you know Petraeus rolling in, saying, "Oh no, man, yeah. just give me three decades and several trillion dollars, and I can reform Afghanistan." Right. And everybody thought, "Okay, well that." Right. <laughs> and he wrote a piece, too, with one of my dearest mentors, a guy you may have met, Les Gelb, about what could happen in Iraq. And he basically said it's going to fall into three different states. Right. And everybody said that's so unlikely or it's so radical. Like, you know, there were a lot of the foreign policy and, and national defense issues that were grounded in experience. I'm so glad you brought that up because it's one of the things that's been most damaging about this administration is if you bring in so many outsiders, they don't know how to drive the car. Yeah. Right. Like they're the dog that caught the car and has to figure out how to drive it. Right. And they smash it in everything. And that's true, whether it's the Department of Education or the VA or the Pentagon. And there's so many people who have no basic knowledge of how to operate what they're driving. Right. And, and I think we've seen that, you know, maybe most acutely in places like the Pentagon or Homeland Security or in education. So I think I'm really glad you brought that up. I think it's a, it's a really, really important point. Let me shift and ask you a question. I got to ask you. That I ask everybody. You're, you're a serious guy, man. You do some serious stuff and really important stuff, but you also keep a really steady hand and, and a balance. Um, Jason Dempsey, what makes you happy? <laughs> uh, usually, man, it's just getting out and, uh, well, we can't do it right now, but bike racing usually. Um, it's a great outlet. It has nothing to do with uh, foreign policy or veteran status. And, you know, you get out there and you get in the mud and leave it all out there. Um, Normally, this would be the start of the race season. I'd be out uh, racing with my son for the first time, you know, in some of the same races, which I was really looking forward to. Uh, but again, I'm still able to ride my bike. Um, 
you know, I own a bike. <laughs> I have the time and freedom to do that. So, uh, yeah, especially grateful for that. So awesome. Enjoy beers and bike racing. Awesome. Awesome. Not at the same time. Uh, or maybe at the same time. <laughs> <Sometimes>. <laughs> you think yeah, so? races. <laughs> right? yeah. That's what it feels like in the Trump administration. <laughs> Bunch of guys who drink too much beer and don't know how to ride bikes. But let me ask you, so it's 9-11 time. You know, I've focused a lot on 9-11 on the show and 9-11 first responders. Um, you know, you have a powerful 9-11 story and experience. Two questions, Jason. You know, one, what's your 9-11 story? Where were you that day? And with all this time in perspective, you know, whether it's somebody like us who experienced it, lived it, or maybe the kid who was born a week later. Yeah, Jesus. What do you what do you want those folks to know about that now as we hit the nineteenth anniversary? Yeah, it's stunning, really, right? It's uh, kids who are graduating college today, you know, or maybe two, three, four years old. They have no understanding of nine eleven. So that's a it's now a, a full generation um, past. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, for me, uh, I had uh, <laughs> I had just given up a, a company command out of uh, Fort Stewart, Georgia. Uh, and, you know, rolled into New York City. And I remember, right, but New York Times Magazine that week was all about some heiress who'd gotten drunk in the Hamptons and, you know, backed into some people at a party. And it was like, and I remember thinking, holy shit, I, I thought, you know, Kuwait and everything else was important, but apparently I got to figure out where the fuck the Hamptons are and, you know, what that is. Uh, you know, and then so I'm sleeping there the morning of 9-11 and, uh, you know, no shame in my game. I was sleeping in uh, and father-in-law called up and was like, hey, a plane hit him. I'm like, God damn it. I got to get out of bed. And, um, you know, then everything rapidly unfolded. Um, and obviously we, we've, you know, we've seen the, the aftermath of that. Um, What's really disheartening, right? Because in those weeks after, the one thing we all remember, uh, you know, it was a good seven days before anybody honked at each other again, right? Mm. It was shocking to hear a car honk again. Mm. Um, and there was a sense of, okay, let's all just kind of take stock of what's going on, be there for each other and figure out, well, what does this mean about America's role in the world? And unfortunately, you know, that then deviated and... Uh, instead of taking stock of where we were, we had folks like Rumsfeld and Cheney who came in and brought pre-existing agendas into what our reaction was going to be. Uh, and we're still suffering from that. You know, 19 years later, uh, we're still suffering with the immaturity uh, and the mendacity of how we approach that aftermath and what we use that tragedy for. Uh, and the opportunity, you know, it's, it's hard to say, you know, with tragedy comes opportunity. Uh, and we shot it, right? We wasted it. We threw it away uh, and went back to business as usual. So, you know, what can we take now? I mean, if with this, with the loss of 186,000 lives, uh, I'm afraid we might not take stock of this either and figure out how to be better. I hope not, but mm. anyway, that's... I, I think whatever happens going forward, I hope that your voice is at the center of it. I, I know that if Biden's elected, you should get some phone calls. And I hope you're back inside the White House or back in a position that can help drive forward the future and remember those lessons 
you know, you are, uh, you're, you're, you're a conscience man. And, and I think that, uh, especially in the weeks to come and days to come, it's going to be more important than ever. Um, you know, I think you and a small number of guys and gals like you, you know, represent the, the future of this country and you can help us stay on the right path or, or if you're not involved, we can go down a wrong path. So I hope you're intimately involved in whatever happens inside Washington in the next couple of years. Uh, I recommend that everybody read your book and read everything you write, every, listen to everything you say. Uh, you're, you're a true patriot, man. And I, I'm, I'm careful about throwing that word around, but I think you help us understand what's good and what's not um, and, and what we can do going forward. So I'm really grateful to have this conversation with you right now. I hope you'll come back. Uh, and before I, I, I leave you, I got some gifts. I'm going to give you rapid fire. <laughs> Getting some, uh, some angry Americans gear uh, made by veterans. You can ride it on your bike or use it to clean up some beer. Um, you got some Uncle Nearest uh, whiskey, best whiskey in America, small batch whiskey yeah. coming your way. It's like half of it's gone, man. You've been hitting it this morning? Uh, no, <laughs> this, I haven't yet. <laughs> That's funny. It is half drank. My stash is low because I've been sending it to all my guests. All right. <laughs> but it's good stuff, and that's coming your way. You can ride it on your – drink it on your bike or whatever. Uh, and the last question I've got for you is kind of the Rorschach test of our show. Our uh -huh. listeners know this. Uh, peeps are an American classic. Jason Dempsey, if you had to pick a color of peeps, yellow, blue, or pink, which one would you pick and why? It's a trick question because there's no flavor difference. Uh, so for one, I, when I was deployed, you know, I was, I, the, the book I'm most proudest of um, is I, you know, in my limited spare time, I, I would stage uh, peep battles in the talk and uh, send the stories back to my son. Um, so I am, I am a huge fan of, of peeps. I would say, uh, the the pink ones look the best when you light them on fire. So I'd go with pink. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best peeps answer we've ever gotten. Seventy. I was not expecting the peeps answer. I didn't follow all the way to the end on these. So <laughs> seventy six shows, and that is by far the best peeps answer we've ever had. That's fantastic, man. Well. Here's to many more peeps battles and, and uh, hopefully less things lighting on fire in yeah. this country. But uh, hey, man, thanks for all you do. And thanks for these conversations. I said any anytime people are willing to sit and talk about the role of the military, uh, the role of citizens, um, we need to have more of these conversations. And I'm exceptionally grateful that you're hosting them and they're using your platform uh, to get people to pay attention and you know, not necessarily come to an answer that I may agree with, but hell. Come to an answer, man. So I appreciate you forcing those conversations. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, brother. Right back at you. Wish you all the best. And uh, here's to lighting peeps on fire, man. <laughs> <laughs> Stay frosty, my friend. You too, brother. On 9-11 and in the days after 9-11, we were all angry Americans, and some of us turned that anger into positive impact. Others turned it into negative impact. Others turned it into more destruction. And again now, there's plenty of reason to be angry, but there is a way to turn it, to channel it, to harness it, 
And there's always a way to make an impact. And just like every guest we've had on this show from the start, like Jason Dempsey, and like so many people who stepped up on 9-11, continue to step up today, and will step up into the future, you can be a helper. And it's always time to be a helper, but especially right now. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. And every show, I offer a way to convert your righteous, understandable anger into positive action. A positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. An action that will channel your energy, make you feel good, and make a difference. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes: integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. So this 9-11, remember the spirit of 9-11. Remember the men and women who stepped up on 9-11. And remember the men and women who are dying now because they stepped up on 9-11. If you've listened to the show for a while, you remember our conversations with New York City firefighter and hero Rob Sarah. He's on the board at the Ray Pfeiffer Foundation, named after another hero, Ray Pfeiffer. So this 9-11, take some action and go to the RayPfeifferFoundation.org. Step up and help the heroes who stepped up to help us and who will continue to inspire generations of heroes in decades to come. Go to the RayPfeifferFoundation.org, or you can Google it, or go to the Angry Americans website, and there are ways for you to get involved, take action, and help. And if you've got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media and use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Never forget, don't just be angry, be active. I never forget that just like on 9-11, America is a team game. And everything we do, we do together. And that's true of this show, too. So a couple of quick thank yous, people I will never forget and I never forget. First off, Jason Dempsey. Follow him on Twitter. Get his book, Our Army, Soldiers, Politics, and American Civil-Military Relations. He's a fantastic leader. Watch for everything he writes. Listen for everything he says. Check him out in the Serial podcast about Bo Bergdahl. But Jason Dempsey is a leader that we need and a leader we should support. So check out Jason Dempsey and tell your friends about him. My thanks, of course, also to the Righteous Media team, Mighty Mercy Rich, creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz. My thanks to our friends at Uncle Nearest Whiskey. Go to UncleNearestWhiskey.com and never forget, it's the best whiskey in America. I also never forget our vigilant Patreon members. You are the folks that support this podcast, support Righteous Media, and support the good work. I want to especially thank Chris Sinney, who joined recently, Brian Cross, Bill Woods, Nikki Waltman, and Brian Turco. I want to thank them all. They've joined in the last month. Appreciate you stepping up. We do not forget you. and We hope you will continue to drive forward this energy and this positivity and this content. And like them, you can check us out on Patreon. You can check us out anywhere on social media. Call, tweet, post on social, and you know what'll happen. I'll make you famous. And my deepest thanks, of course, to my family, my wife, and my two amazing boys, especially this time of year. I always reflect and remember how grateful I am to have you. 
and how grateful we are to be connected to New York City and be a part of its rebuilding. But my deepest thanks to my wife and my two boys who make sure I never forget what it's all about. And never forget to tell your friends about this podcast. Let them know that we're out here. Subscribe now and you'll have it hot and fresh and waiting for you every Thursday. We've got some incredible guests coming up. I'm not going to spill the beans, but check out our Instagram and our social for more. And guess the guest. If you guess correctly, we will never forget. And we will get you hooked up with some awesome Angry Americans gifts. So go ahead and do it. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. And please keep the feedback coming on social media. I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. And go to angryamericans.us. You can sign up for our newsletter. Uh, You can see video of my conversation with Jason Dempsey and a bonus feature. We go deeper on his peeps answer. If you want to see that, go to angryamericans.us now and you can see the entire story and see pictures of how he created this amazing books involving peeps and a Lego guy in Afghanistan for his kids. Check it out. Go to angryamericans.us now. And just like Jason did in Afghanistan, just like so many heroes did on 9-11, and like so many of you every single day out there on the front lines, we will adapt, improvise, and overcome. And believe it or not, football's starting this week. So that's some reason to celebrate, at least for now, until it's not. But football is back, and I am excited to watch some football at a social distance and to watch this experiment happen. I'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, never forget... It's okay to be angry, especially now, and know you're not alone. We're all a little angry. That's because we're paying attention. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you so much for listening and spreading the word. Wear a mask, stay frosty, stay vigilant, America, and never forget.